Looking at Psalm 14 this morning, Psalm 14 this morning. In the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, atheist Christopher Hitchens, a popular speaker and promoter of atheism, argues that religion has not helped the world, but has rather caused a lot of trouble and chaos. He says people would be better off without religion, without God. People can live an ethical life apart from God. I was calling the library this past week and asked to see a copy of this. I read it uh, a few years ago, and I did a book review. There's one in the, the bulletin there of that. In, um, I was asking if they had it, and I got a little raised eyebrows. I uh, think, why am I asking about a book that God is not great? I said, well, I don't believe that. Uh, but uh, looking for a reference for a sermon, I'm looking at um, from Psalm 14. He is one who not only believes that there is not a God, but promoted that idea. Uh, He did die in 2011 of cancer. Um, And so he is is one who has met his his maker, even though he did not believe in God. Well, what does God say about people like him? The Word of God speaks to this, and it does so from Psalm 14, Psalm 14 is very similar to Psalm 53, uh, almost word for word, much of the psalm. There's a few places where it is different. And so twice in the Word of God, we have much the same essence, and it says this, Psalm 14, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord? They are there. They are in great fear, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous." You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. What does God say about someone who believes that there is no God, who says there is no God? Well, God's description of that person is that he is a fool. He is a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, several things. Can you turn on the back TV and then put that remote in? There we go. Thank you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is what God says of someone who does not believe in his existence. He says, there is, they are a fool. A fool is someone who lives his life apart from the knowledge of God. And as we look at Uh, This passage of Scripture, as we'll look at it all there, I believe it provides for us a hope in for fools, that they don't have to remain in that place. This is a message of hope. There is a solution to people and their foolishness. So the fool is one who says in his heart, 
There is no God. Uh, so uh, this is what the fool says here. So hope for fools. What does God say about fools? Well, first of all, a fool is someone who lives without any concern for God. They live with their lives without any concern for God. Look there in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He does not want to believe in the existence of God. He does not want to acknowledge that there is a God. Notice where the fool says this, in his heart. That means a fool can say something totally different publicly. It may be religious. He may live a good life in a lot of situations, but in his heart of hearts, he's saying, I do not believe that there is a God. If you look at verse 1 there, the fool says in his heart, there is, New King James is in italics, indicating it's supplied by the translators to make a flow of the sentence. Really what he says is, no God. There's no God. I don't want God over me. I don't want God in my life. I don't believe that I'm accountable to God. I don't believe that God cares about me, knows about me. I'm going to live my life without any concern for God. Which leads us to several applications of this. That means that there are the intellectual atheists, we can describe them, those who are settled in their convictions that there is no God. They believe that and they promote that. Uh, You could think of the the names like I mentioned, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, and some of these men are brilliant by the world standpoint. But in God's evaluation, as Romans chapter 1 says, Professing to become wise, they became fools. It doesn't matter what the world says about them from God's standpoint. He says they are fools if they deny the existence of God and try to live their lives apart from him. Another category would be those agnostics. Agnostics is someone who says, well, we just can't know if there is a God. Maybe they'd be willing to believe in him if they could prove, but we just don't know that there is a God. And then there's another category I would describe as the practical atheists. These people might say they believe in God, uh, but in their actions, they live as if there is no God. They don't care about what God says about what they do. They carry out their actions with no concern for God. God doesn't know about me. God doesn't care. It doesn't matter what I do. No matter what they say from their mouths, in their lies, in their hearts, they're showing that they don't believe that God is there, that God cares about what they do. We're starting to get into apple season. Have you ever got an apple and you cut it open and it's all mush on the inside, just brown throughout everything? It looks fine on the outside, but when you get into it, there's nothing worthwhile there. That's a way that a fool is. Look in verse 1. They are corrupt. It may look good on the outside, but they're morally corrupt. Why? They don't have God as the standard to make their decisions. They have a corrupt moral nature, which leads them to do vile, horrible things, abominable things, abominable works, verse 1 says. There is no one who does good. This describes sin of omission, not doing the good that you should do, like helping others or telling the truth or being kind Uh, not living for God. Those are sins of omission. Often they lead to sins of commission, breaking one of God's laws. But here he says they haven't done the good that they should do. 
Now, as we think about this, this describes what the Bible describes as total depravity, and we'll describe it later on in the coming verses as well. And it doesn't mean that someone is as evil and sinful as they could be, but sin has affected every area of their lives. And these are those who are trying to live their life apart from God, and it's showing in their actions. They don't do what is good. They do what is sinful against God. So a fool, whatever the category, whether they're, they're settled in their convictions, I don't believe that there is a God, or whether they say there's a God, but they live as if it doesn't matter what God says, that is what a fool is, who lives without any concern for God. Secondly, what does God say about fools? God knows and sees everyone. And his assessment of people is this. All are sinners. All have sinned. What does the fool say? God's not here. He doesn't care. But what does verse 2 say? The Lord looks down from heaven. God is there. God does see. God does know and care what people are doing. Just because someone doesn't believe in God doesn't mean he exists. His existence is outside of us, that it doesn't, it doesn't depend upon whether we believe in it or not. He is the eternal God who always exists, whether people believe in him or not. And whether they think he's not there or doesn't care, God says, I am here, I do see. Notice what he says in verse 1, there is no God. It's a more general name for God. Uh, This could be used in the God Molech, that title. But in verse 2, we see, what is the name for God? The Lord. And that is the way that uh, we understand the word Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how it is. This is the personal name of God. And so what about who is God? It's not just a God or just a God above the gods, but the Lord is the one true God. That is his name. And Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Whether someone believes in God, well, from God's standpoint, doesn't change who he is. He is there. He sees and he knows. And what his, he says about people is what matters. It's not what people say about themselves or other people think about them that matters. It's what God says about them that matters. And look at the, in verses 2 and following, the the universal language that is used here. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, so humanity, to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so God here describes the state of everyone, He describes them as sinners. They have all, they don't have an understanding of God, a spiritual understanding of him. They don't seek after God and pursue him to come to know him. But they have all turned aside, verse 3, they have rejected him and they have turned aside from doing what is right. They have together become corrupt. 
Just like in verse 2, they are corrupt, so too all have become corrupt. They are morally, uh, spiritually corrupt, and they do not do what is good, no, not one. Verse 4 continues this description of sin. They They are workers of iniquity. What are they pursuing? What are they carrying out? It is sin against God, and who eat up my people as they eat bread. Using a description of devouring food, so too they devour people. They take advantage of people and use and abuse them. This is what those who do not know God do, and they do not call upon the name of the Lord. They don't seek him. They don't turn to God in life. They're trying to live their lives apart from him. Something hard comes up in their life. They don't turn to God. They turn away from God and become settled even more in their resistance of him. They should be, verse 5, in a great fear because they are against the righteous, but God is with the generation of the righteous. And this is the encouragement. As Even as David is, is writing, he has people who are fools against him. He, he says, God is with me as one who is righteous, who is righteous in my standing before God. But what does the fool do in verse 6? You shame the counsel of the poor. So they make fun of the poor. They make fun of the ones that find the Lord as their refuge. They mock those who try to trust God and to find him as their safety, their security, their salvation. Have you ever had someone ask you, why do you believe in God? Why do you trust in God? What has God ever done for you? Probably in some way we've had that question put to us. Maybe someone has made fun of you for trusting activity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David here gives a plea to the Lord, longing for salvation to come for Israel and to come out of Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It's a place of God's special presence in the tabernacle. And so may salvation for Israel come out of Jerusalem, and may it come for God's people. Let Jacob, one of the 12 tribes, he rejoice, and Israel be glad when the Lord would bring them back from the captivity of his people. Now, the captivity we talked about in the the prophets happened later than David, uh, when God brought the Israelites and then Judah into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. It could be that they referenced that and wrote that in later. But I think it's more a general description of the Lord bringing back his people from captivity, the Lord restoring them to the place of blessing. The fools were oppressing, and the what were looking to God for deliverance, so that you would again restore your people to the place of blessing. But we need, what we need to see is this. David longs for salvation to come to God's people. He looks for the deliverance of his people. And as we look back at biblical history, certainly we see times when God brought that deliverance for his people. But that deliverance is ultimately fulfilled in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation has come. God has provided it through his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just for his people. No, it was, but it is for all. As John the baptizer is 
preparing the way for Jesus Christ. We read in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will be made straight and the rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. The salvation of God is in the person of Jesus Christ whom God has provided for sinners. Really another word for fools is sinners. Those who try to live their life apart from God. And the hope for sinners, the hope for fools is salvation. It's not to try harder to do better, but to look to the one whom has provided the forgiveness of sins through his death upon the cross. But in order for someone to receive that salvation, they need to come to the end of themselves and to realize that they are guilty before God and that they deserve his judgment but that Jesus has taken that for them, died upon the cross and rose again. And if they agree with God that they are sinners, that they are fools, that they have been trying to live life apart from God and place their faith in his son, he will forgive them of their sins and give them eternal life. He will uh, make them new. He will change them from fools to those who are on the path of wisdom. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Salvation has been provided through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3 draws this together for us. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish. Who are we in our sin? Foolish. Disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is writing, saying, this is the story of someone who believes in Christ. I once was foolish. God in his mercy saved me when I trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. Now he has given me eternal life and I am on the path of wisdom. Is that your story? God in his grace has saved you, changed you from being foolish to one who is on the path of wisdom. I hope that it is I encourage you to ask questions if you're not sure for yourself. It's interesting, as Christopher Hitchens lived his life, he became friends with a number of Christians. And as he was going through cancer in the last part of his life, he took some road trips with Christians. And they read through books of the Bible, and as he was writing and 
reading through 11 uh, John. Uh, they, one of his friends, friends relates, uh, Hitchin suddenly stopped reading and began quoting John 11, 25, and 26 from memory. Uh, and it's a great verse, I add, sensing that we have reached a defining moment. Let me pause and read those for us. John 11, 25, and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? They just read that. Uh, His friend recounts, it's a great verse, I add, sensing we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Hitchin says. And then taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, do you, believest thou this, Larry Tauton? Sarcasm is evident, but it lacks a customary force. I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believest this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever repost, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Even in his settled conviction that there is no God, he wondered, is this the right path? We're not told, we don't know that he ever turned to the Lord. But his example can be one for us that we need to accept what God said that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that God is indeed real. We will all be accountable to him. But the Savior has come. His name is Jesus. And for us to trust in him as our Savior and to follow him with our lives, to find him as our refuge. No matter what the the world says, God is our refuge. To not be shaken by the changing ideas and beliefs, the pressures of the world, because by his grace, he has changed me from being a fool to one who is on the path of wisdom. Father God, your assessment of us is hard to hear sometimes. And we are fools. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But thank for you, Father God, that you not only say who we are, but you also provide the hope for us. Salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace, your willingness to save people from their sins, to change them from being fools to being on the path of wisdom. Lord, I do pray that that would be the story of each one here. I once was this. I once was in my sin. But God in his grace has saved me. And I'm living for his honor and his glory. I'm living with that reality that God is here. God sees and knows he cares about me. He cares about my actions. I have found him as my refuge. And I'm not turning away. Lord, continue your working in our lives, we pray. May we not live as practical 
atheists, forgetting about you, but growing in the fear of the Lord so that we live for your honor and glory.